And it's because the, the speed of the news cycle is just so fast. What do we do when life in our news cycle is moving in a super fast, almost cosmic way as it currently is? How do we ingest it and find ways to make our own opinions without being influenced by so many people, pundits, and being persuaded versus one side or the other? What I always hear a lot is like Walter Cronkite. Right? Like a lot of people grew up with, with Walter Cronkite and he was like a straight shooter, like straight down the middle. You never knew which way the guy leaned. He just told it to you like it was. And that's kind of the, the same mentality that we try to try to bring, right? It's like we want we know that there's people out there trying to spin stuff. We know that it's sometimes tough to get to the bottom of things. But at the end of the day, we deserve to know, right? And and I'm a firm believer in the fact that information should be readily available. Correct information should be readily available. <laughs> um, Correct <and> information. <laughs> that's, that's the key. To, that's underlined and circled and bolded Correct. all at the same time. And getting correct information just may be harder than ever to achieve. We're getting bombarded with beeps and bites and threads over the course of every second of our lives, every minute, every hour, for months, for years, for decades now. How do we work through that? How do we get the best information for us? And how important is that? What do people actually need to know about this? How do we communicate what people need to know? You know, how do we provide value? People are scared. There's a lot of fear, panic, misinformations floating around. So what we've actually found is, you know, a lot of people are turning to us because we have a very unique twist um, where we combine a lot of the need to know information alongside positivity. And in times like these where there's so much fear, panic, anxiety, uncertainty about the future, um, that type of, of mission and that value proposition, the type of content we put together is really resonating. And, you know, I, I feel like we're providing a very valuable service. Today's episode of Dr. D's Social Network, the tables get turned on me. My good friend, Peter Nowak, who's also the CEO and founder of The Donut, a news organization that provides straightforward information related to the news and ask you to make your own opinion and feelings about it is here to interview me about the current state of things in our country. We talk a little bit about my background growing up and quite a bit about the current state of race relations in America and how we can learn more and do better and have action to become a better nation. Darian, what is going on, my man? I'm good, man. I'm I'm doing very good actually today. Good, man. It's good to hear. I uh thanks for thanks again for having me come on and, and do this. And I feel like we might have to give a little bit of a, a preface um, to people listening to give a little bit of a background or context. Um, but we had actually yeah. recorded a, a podcast together. Um, what was it like a month ago, a couple months ago? Yeah, I think so. 
Yeah. And while we were doing that, I mean, it was like every other word for me. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got a question for Derry. I got a question for Derry. Right. And I'm just biting my tongue the whole time because I'm going, okay, you know, you can't ask the questions, not the right forum, not the right forum. Um, so when you mentioned kind of offline that uh, you got some some of your listeners asking somebody to come back and interview you, it's like, holy cow, man, I, I would love to have that opportunity. So thank you so much for, for having me there, here today to, you know, do just that. Yeah, no, I'm I'm happy to do it. I'm I'm an open book. I'm very transparent. I just love sharing whatever I can share. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome, man. Yeah, well, I like to always start things kind of at the beginning because to me, you know, childhood and how people grow up pretty much can determine a lot of how people act and think and have turned into, you know, uh, adults. So with that being said, I know you had the like a, a military father. Your your father was in the military. Did you guys grow up or move when you were growing up a lot or kind of what was your, your childhood like? I would say that it was, it was a very good childhood um, in many ways. You know, my father was, is, was and is a great example of, of consistency and, and love and patience. Um, you know, we grew up in a military family. My dad was in for about 28 years as an officer, so he retired as uh, a colonel. United States Army. And um, I think he did a lot of um, his work with us in showing commitment and showing consistency and being a beacon of, of hard work, uh, great uh, ethical, moral values, and um, just showed us the way through that. My mom was definitely more of the talking and still is a lot of the talking type and was really the one who spent a lot of the the daily basis with us and shaping us and providing lessons. She was tough. She was very tough on us, but she did the thing that I think is sometimes missing and in, in growing up in today's folks. Is she was she provided a lot of love, but she was extremely tough at the same time. She believes in accountability. She very adamant about getting things done and doing it well. I actually remember most of my middle school and high school, my mom would not allow us to do anything after we got off the bus until we did our homework. We were not allowed to do anything. There was no like, I'll do it later, or you're going to stay up all night doing homework and the next day. It was very militaristic. It was like, this is what you do when you get home. And that changed as I got in athletics. I I, I basically just started doing it at school, my homework and stuff. And <laughs> But it was very strict and it was bedtime. I had a bedtime all the way up until I was 17 years old, completely like my mom did not mess around uh, with us. So it did. I think it just instilled a lot of consistency and a lot of structure and uh, an existence where we moved around constantly. So when you're constantly, your environment's changing all the time, you need some other structure to, to have some footing, you know? Yeah. So what kind of places did you guys live? Oh, uh, well, I was born in Germany and uh, near Rhein-Main Air Force Base and um, or Frankfurt area. So it, I grew up there for a couple years and then we moved to the, to the United States and, you know, we lived in Texas. We lived in New Jersey, New York, Louisiana, Kansas, uh, Virginia, Maryland. I mean, it just keeps going all the places. <laughs> it was constant moving, uh, Georgia. Um, and then back to uh, Europe and Germany for several years after that. So it was kind of like a whirlwind on a regular basis. 
Wow. So you went Europe to USA and then back to Europe? Yes. What's like the- And then the, back to the USA. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, what's the time difference in between those moves? Is it like a year? Is it a few years? Some were six months. Uh, some were two years. That was the max. That's I, I also grew, uh, moved a lot when I was growing up, lived in you know, Hong Kong, India, California, Massachusetts, you know, et, et cetera. And at least for me, um, it, it allowed me to view different cultures and also get interested in people. Now, do you think that childhood and moving up a lot, was it hard for you to make friends? Was it easy for you to make friends? Uh, very hard for me to make friends, um, which is different from my brother. He found it very easy to make friends, but which is kind of a weird contrast as, as uh, being in my 40s now, I find it much easier to make friends than he does at huh. this point now. <laughs> so we've kind of changed roles, but I think it was me. It was just, it was just much harder. Um, I kind of built up a wall um, when, because you know when you move to a place, you, you're giving a a clock, a countdown clock of like, this is how long you're going to be here. So you know when you're, you know your beginning date and you know your end date. And so because you know that, you decide not to get close to people because you just know, you know exactly when it's going to end for that. So that was difficult for me. And um, so while I did have friendships, I just kind of kept it at a distance, you know. When when did that change for you? Because I had a, a very, again, similar experience growing up where, as you said, there's always an expiration date on when you're moving. Mm. You, but some of the times, at least for me, I just didn't know when. So same thing with you. you know, it I made friends. I was very good at making friends. But I also knew in the back of my mind that you know it, it's going to be difficult for me to, to leave people. So I would never get too, you know, too attached. Um, so it it was it, it's just very very interesting to me to kind of hear that similar perspective. So when did that flip for you? Because you said you're now your brother has trouble making friends, but you have no you have no trouble at all. Yeah, I think um, once I learned more about who I was as a person, I think that happened in college. Then the flip for me was then I did I was it was weird because then all of a sudden I took a public speaking course I had a psychiatrist as part of our educational program at James Madison and a basic counseling course so all those things really helped me resolve my issues with moving around and detaching from people and then I basically looked at friendship as what does it actually mean to me like what's my operational definition of it and do I want a lot of friends or do I just want to have a few friends here and there or do I want to seek it or do I want to just let it come to me? I think that's just the time where I was really like, okay, well, I like having friends just like I like having friends now, but I, I, my, my mindset is more of like, I, I like, I just like to meet people and then I kind of put them in tears related. So if like, we hit it off and it goes really well. And I want to spend more time with the person. I think we easily become friends and we have regular communication. If we're just very cordial to each other and they're just a very nice relationship, we kind of have like a secondary friendship. You know, we don't really talk much type of thing, but we do connect here and there. And then to have more, you know, kind of acquaintance-based friendships where it's just, we check in every six months or so and, um, you know, it's a very nice and pleasant thing, but we're not having these super close relationships. So I started like tearing my level of friendship 
with people. And that's so interesting because, you know, I, as I've gotten older and I say that with, uh, take that with a grain of salt, I'm you know, 20, <laughs> 26 years old, right. but as I've gotten older, it's been really interesting to see which friendships have drifted apart and which ones have kind of stayed, right? And at least for me, it's the time commitment aspect of that. Is that kind of what you're talking about when you're talking about tears or is it again, more just kind of focused on the connection and, and just more what you want to do, um, you know, in that sense? I don't think I've been asked that before. Um, I think it's it's primarily like the connection. Like it's a feeling. It's hard to like, I don't like, like some people that, well, I want to have these type of friends. Like we like to do these types of things together and stuff. That's not really what it is for me. It's more of like, if I start talking to somebody and I feel something about their energy and there's something about them that pulls me towards them and their presence as a person, then I, I just want to be around them more often. I want to talk to them more often. And I'm very quick to know that with somebody. Like, I mean, I'm not saying that just because we're doing this together, but I told you yesterday, I said, well, Peter, like you're my friend now, you know? And I think we just have very quickly created a very nice relationship where it's building very quickly with different ideas and activities and thoughts and how do we collaborate together? I will say that doesn't happen often to me in my life. But what happens very often is just having good conversation with people, check back in, maybe each month, you know, a text here, there, and that. Um, so I think when I feel that energy towards somebody, like what I feel like I'm building with you or a few other people that I have, I actively pursue it. And if I don't feel that, I will still actively pursue it, just not all the, just not as much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's that's a great segue because like every everyone I've encountered, and I have a lot of entrepreneur friends, small business owners, you know, people who create and, and build stuff, and all of those people that I've encountered who do that have a like a burning desire to to do so. And I imagine for you on the podcast front, it was kind of similar. So, like, what what is that for you? I'm just curious about what people are up to and creating the connections, but I'm, I'm just in, in terms of how I connect with people, I think I've just, I have a desire to know people, but I don't have a desire to like know everybody on a super close level with that. I desire that with very few people. There's just only so much bandwidth I can give on things, but I do desire to have different levels of information and communication and I'm very honest, like in my podcast, I, I've told the audience before, there's just, there's people you can probably tell that I jive with very quickly and we laugh a lot and it is a synergy. And then there's some people where the, the interviews are more, they're not transactional, but they're just more straightforward. Or some people come on just to tell their story and that's what they want to do. They just, they don't want me to talk. They want to tell their story, you know? Yeah. So, and that's, that's so interesting. Like, do you think it's just a mutual connection thing that's, that creates the the burning passion? Is it like when you're choosing your guests, is it just because it's stuff that interests you? I guess what drives your, your guest choice? Definitely things that interest me, I would say. That's the first, that's definitely the first thing is I might read somebody's profile or skim over what they put on a post and if the topic is interesting, I'll definitely be like, okay, I want to, why are they into this topic? And then I'll read further down into it and I'll be like, 
why are they putting this out there? Like, you know, <laughs> like really get fascinated. Like, why is this, why have they chosen to put this out there and swim upstream when most of what's out there is swimming downstream? You know, um, like I had a guy on one time and his whole thing was about porn addiction. And he wrote all this, he's wrote many books about it. And he's like so honest. And I felt like I was looking at his his um, profile. And then I looked at like 10 other people as I was browsing through people. And I thought like nine of these are about better business practices or overcoming adversity. Or, and, and again, this, that's not bad stuff, but it felt like it was saturated with the same type of thing. And then here, there comes this big spotlight of like, Hey, I'm going to put out there that I have this issue and, uh, I'm trying to help other people have this issue and I'm just going to put it out there. I'm very attracted to unique, weird stories completely. And if it's, if it's too similar about a product, some health gel or some plants somebody's eating and stuff, I mean, I'm not that interested in that. I mean, you know, I just... Give me something that's very raw, very um, scathing in a sense, like the person is like opening their existence to criticism from it. I would, I like those type of things. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a, a vulnerability or, or an authenticity to that, at least for me, that kind of, kind of draws me, you know, to that. And especially like the uniqueness and the weirdness. Cause you know, a lot of times, you know, at least to me, you can tell when somebody's being absolutely genuine and authentic and it's all that more impactful because it's true. It's unique. It's weird. So I know you've done like how many episodes of the podcast now? At least uh, 100. 139. Yeah. There you go. 139. So you've <laughs> probably heard a whole ton of unique and weird stories. So, I mean, out of all of those, is there one that comes to mind as your, your favorite? I was recently asked this, actually. Um, I think the more I do, it's harder to pinpoint what um my favorite one is um because i feel like there's several of them now that i'm like man like because the way i know is kind of like when somebody asked me about the podcast and they said oh i'll send you a couple episodes and i'll like look through it and i'll be like oh definitely this one you know type of thing you know i would say like the last two the most two recent ones that i that come to mind is one with a gentleman uh named stan ward um and I think what was really beautiful about it is this, you know, we were emotional together as men. Like he started crying. I was getting all choked up and was just talking about being a guy, like being a man and what that, you know, gender roles and the vulnerability of why do we have to act this certain way? Cause society tells us to be this way and things like that. And it was just this really raw conversation. And like on there, he was like, I just want to be friends with you, Darian. Can we be friends? You know, can we? And it was just like so endearing, you know, and um, it was just beautiful. I think it was, it was like something, it was like a conversation about everything and nothing at the same time, <laughs> which was kind of strange, you well, know. That, I mean, it's just, it's captivating. Like moments like that are, are absolutely captivating. Um and that one, I mean, that one sounds sounds absolutely incredible. I need to go back and, and check that one out. <laughs> um, I thought it was not- good. It was excellent. And then the story of Courtney Wisely is the one I probably share the most with people because it's just so shocking. It was one that 
I think if you listen to it, you will audibly hear me gasping several times during it as I'm hearing this woman talk about her life. It was just so outrageous and crazy. I just, I'm like, I, I don't have any problems compared to you, like at all. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> mind blowing. Episode 88, Courtney Wisely. It's called Don't Stop Believing. It will blow your mind, literally. Wow. So does that correlate? So the, the favorite stories, do those correlate with the favorite guests or are those also separate for you? And remember, I was on the podcast last month. <laughs> <laughs> They're different. They're definitely different. I would say um, like Courtney Wisely, one of my favorite episodes personally for me to, li I've listened to it several times, but I wouldn't say that we're, we're talking to each other at all. I mean, we haven't really talked since then. I think my favorite guests are just people who are just, they're inquisitive. My favorite guests are the ones who often turn the podcast around on me and they start asking me questions and they, and we start getting in this weird kind of astral plane of like, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? That type, like this natural inquisitiveness with a guest when they start turning it on me becomes when I really start falling for the guests in a certain way. Yeah. Well, it's the, I think the attempt at true human connection, right? And it's like, well, I, I'm telling you what I, what I think. I want to hear what you think. And I want to see if we agree. I want to see where we disagree. I want to see, I want to actually communicate with you as opposed to just talking past each other or talking at each other. It's talking with each other. And to me, that's, that's absolutely awesome. That's why I love having these conversations with you and kind of, you know, just getting the opportunity to come in your podcast and come and do this is, has been awesome and, and eye-opening for me. So I guess with that being said, I mean, I know when you started the podcast, it was more of like a, a passion thing. You just wanted to go talk to interesting people. But now as it's kind of grown, it's expanded, you've done 139 episodes. Like what's next? Like what, like what are your goals with the podcast? <clears throat> I think, uh, I think about this quite a bit because there's a, there's a point I think in anything where, you become aware of yourself, kind of, you become sentient to your own existence of whatever you're doing. And sometimes in TV, they have called that jumping the shark. And then you start pressing and doing things that are not native to what made the thing successful for that. So I'm always aware of that. I'm like, how do I navigate this? Um, the show has always been about giving people who don't have a voice, a voice and to not purposely try to bring on people who are who have are heavyweights in terms of their social media following you know notoriety to not push for that because in the beginning I, I could have come out like the first three or four episodes with some with people like that you know in my line of work and and what I've done I I know some I know many individuals who have gigantic presence um they they're very uh, powerful in terms of their influence and their business and stuff. I just don't want to do that. I was just like, I want to introduce, I want to, in, you know, interview some college students. <laughs> you know, I want to talk to people who have had really difficult existences and how and get, let their voice be out. So, but I think also we're at a point with it that it's just naturally starting to gravitate towards some, towards some people who have some more influence already, like larger audiences and stuff. So, I'm going to allow that, you know, in terms of that feeling for me to just do that, but also still keep it very centered on people who I will reach out to 
And the best thing is when they say, you want to interview me? Like, why me? Like, you know, I, I don't really have a big audience. I'm like, exactly. That's why I want to interview you. I want to know. I want to be relatable always. So just want to keep churning out good content. And I want to try to be as creative as possible and how that content comes out over time, how the format, how I format an episode the collaboration between myself and the person I'm discussing with, how do we make the episode more interesting? You know, previous audio they may have, I could splice into there, things like that. So I want to grow it as large as possible, honestly, so that it can be um, heard by as many people as possible, primarily so that all those people who invested into it early in terms of their time and effort to share their stories, now the world will get to hear it as it gets as it gets larger. Yeah. Well, I, I love that. And I think that's one of the things that initially drew me to you. Because if you look at a lot of the major podcasts, it seems to be a bit incestuous in terms of guests. Like you have one guest, <laughs> one podcast, one week, and then another one within kind of like the same um, function or yeah. format or target the next week and so on and so forth. And it's all kind of the same cohorts of, of individuals. I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. And then I, I discovered your podcast and I'm going, I've, who the hell is this? Like, I've never heard of this before. <laughs> but then I, I look at the topic, right? Because you write a little description of what you guys actually discussed. Yeah. I go, holy cow. Like, that's something I really want to listen to. And that's, I think, first how I stumbled a, a, upon you. So I'm, I'm saying that more as a, a, as a fan. And the, that's really interesting where you're talking. What was it? The shark? Um, what was the term you used? Oh, jump the shark. Jump the shark. Yeah. yeah. So so how do you not do that? It's <sighs> a good question. Um I think that I just I just have to continue to be diverse in what I'm offering. Like I I really resonate with what you said about it it kind of it's kind of incestuous to recycle. Like some of the larger podcasts I listen to, like one of the things I don't like that they do is like they'll just recycle an old episode from like a couple of years ago. And so, oh, this is relevant now. So I'm going to put it out there. And I think I get it. I mean, it's like, wow, this was, let me get this older episode some play. We'll revisit it, maybe throw a couple of things on there. But I often don't want to listen to that. As I think sometimes it's hard to produce new content on a regular basis and, and have it be interesting. And so for me, I think I don't want to jump the shark by just being like, oh, I'm just going to, you know what? It's big enough now. I'm going to have all my friends on all the time. And now they're good. We got this platform. And, or I didn't want to just have fitness people initially because I think it'd be so easy for me to have all of my fitness friends and colleagues on. And I know them. I've had plenty of discussions with them, but I'm interested in meeting people I don't know. And then here and there bring on people back to the show. Um, which I think is another point of I try to be careful about who I bring back on regularly and um, how people will receive that. But I like to shock people. I like when when I release a couple episodes every Monday and Thursday that the topics come up and they're like, "What is he talking about now? Like, what is what what foolish thing is he into today?" <laughs> you know, like we're talking. I just released one Monday and it was. This lady, Laura McGuire, who's the CEO and owner of this company, Hipsticks, and it's about the comeback of women's hosiery. I mean, I'm a dude talking about women's hosiery out there, you know. Why not? <laughs> you know, like, hey, I mean, so somebody's got to do it. And do you think that, to, at least to you, is that more 
of a, a challenge to kind of get out of the comfort zone of just talking to folks in the health and fitness industry and branching out into to topics that you just had no idea about? Yeah, I think I get bored pretty easily. And um, talking about fitness and stuff, I like doing it. It's just that it can seem like a reporter asking you the same question over and over again, and you're giving the same answers over and over again. And I could see how that could be annoying. Sometimes like if the listener see here's Darian and they just hear the same point of view from me and the same line of questioning, it's like, I'm not learning anything new about him each time he goes and does something type of thing. And I feel like with my show is that the listener is constantly learning something new. There's always some topic you never thought about that I am willing to put out there for you. What's been your favorite topic? Easily sexuality. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> Just kind of like am, the whole, the whole yeah. thing or anything specific within that? All of it. All of it. Um, I've had several like dating coaches on um, erotica individuals, sex therapist. And I started, I really took a look at myself. I'm like, why am I so into this? I have a lot of this in my, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and I think it's just a part of who we are. That is so taboo to so many people. I don't like that. It's taboo. I'm like, why can't we have a conversation about this? Like, What's the big deal about talking about spanking and vaginal dryness and who cares? Like, let's just talk about it. Well, I mean, that's really interesting because to me, sexuality is taboo, but also so is talking about going to the bathroom, right? Like, you know, (laughs) but, but then when you, uh, I was reading something the other day, like in, in culture, in other cultures, it's, they're so much more open about it and they talk about it freely. But then, you know, you come to the the U.S., you have both the sexuality being taboo and then, uh, you know. The, the waste conversation also being, t- see, I'm being euphemistic. So what, <laughs> what do you, I mean, what do you think that is? Like, why do you think that is? I, you know, living in Europe, and I'm sure you know this and living in many parts of the world, it's just a more open, freer <clears throat> version of conversation. I can remember growing, when I was in Germany, I've lived there twice. And my second time was as a teenager and just seeing things and, kind of the the nude mentality of (laughs) Europeans was very shocking to me. And the discussions are just very nonchalant. It's just really very nonchalant. Whereas in America, it's just so like, we can't talk about that. You know, or like, I'm so sick of people being afraid of talking about money. That's like my next thing too, talking about money on my podcast. And, you know, we can't talk about what we make, you know, and like, and what people are doing and we don't have discussions about those things. I'm I'm tired of people telling me what I can't talk about. Like we can't talk about religion. We can't talk about politics. We can't talk about sex. I'm like, no, we're going to talk about all those things on my show. Pretty in depth too. Yeah. But from a, a reasonable, rational kind of conversational manner, right? Not the immediately jumping to the, because I, I think a lot of the issue no. with those taboo <clears throat> conversations is it becomes tribal so quickly and people just leap to de- defend their point of view. Yeah. I mean, I I would like to think that when I have these different guests who talk about these things on that, it's very intelligent yeah. when we get into it. I I mean, I listen back to it. I'm like, did that sound like pretty intelligent when we're talking to it? And usually it is it like goes in, you know, starting one way and we kind of dive into this lady I had, um, Lori Beth um, Bisbee 
who was really into erotica and polyamorous relationships and things of that nature, I felt like it was a nice descent into a discussion about spanking. And, but it was like also educational and it was, so it wasn't just vulgar. You know, I don't want people to think I'm just talking about these things in a vulgar way and whatever. It's like, I will get you ready for it during the conversation. We will go there. We're just not going to jump into it immediately, you know? Like psychologically or or kind of what, like which uh, using more objective, like data driven stuff or or what do you mean when you say that specifically? I would say psychologically, just like, let me, (laughs) it sounds bad, but for a lack of a better way of like, it's, it's foreplay, you know, it is, um, lubrication, you know, the, the early conversation is it gets you ready, gets you in the mood to discuss deeper things for it. So we're not just jumping into bed in a conversation. It's all like, it's not, I don't do that with anybody. I don't get on and go, Peter, news organization, tell me about the donut. You know, like, (laughs) no, I'm not interested in, in doing that. I'm interested in like learning about you a little bit, discussing whatever's going on, you know, our feelings and stuff. And then it's like, so, you know, I, I saw that you have a news organization that happens like 20 minutes in. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I love because, at least to me, I always want to hear where somebody comes from, like, you know, where they're going. And that to me gives me a good basis to kind of start the conversation to the more, more heavier stuff. Um, So I I guess for, for kind of you, and we haven't even touched on a lot of the, the professional stuff, what are like your, your dreams? Like you think of, you know, Dr. Darian Parker in 25 years. Like what, like what do you think of? And you're really pushing me on this. I'm like, I haven't <laughs> hey, thought it's about it. my job, is it not? <laughs> it is your job and news. Yeah, I love that. That's why I knew this would be good. Um, I think it's changed. Honestly, I'm not saying this because we're talking about a podcast, we're on a podcast, but I would really like my podcast to be my job in the latter part of my work life. I I think I'll always train people and do personal training. I love it. It's always been native to me since I was around 20 years old. Um, but I think it would be nice. It would be interesting to just do what I've done since I've, you know, broke out of my shell all those years, many decades ago, I've realized that this has legs and that this could be a source of, uh, of income for me in the future more and, um, to actually make a living off of it, but, and still maintain the sense of, sincerity and uh, authenticity of, of why it started. And I think that's the hardest thing about the podcast to me is how do I keep it in, in the vein of what I've decided it to be? And I, I don't want to compromise it over time. As soon as you start monetizing things, sometimes it can, it can, it can create a different aura and a feel <clears throat> about the product you're doing, you know, but I've definitely seen that like, this is an area I want to explore. I know I have commitment. I don't have commitment issues. That's never been my problem ever. I, even though I've moved all over and I've, I'm, I will commit, I'm very loyal and, um, you don't get 139 episodes in without being very committed to something. Right. Um, and, when the uh, statistics say opposite, you know, I was just about to say, I know from personal experience how difficult it is to actually create content. It's, you know, <laughs> right. I, I used to think it just magically appeared. Right? It's like, well, no, 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 that's not the case at all. It's like thinking about a podcast, you got to have equipment, you got to have the software, you got to mm-hmm. be able to cut audio, you got to be able to book guests. And not only once, you got to do it consistently. You have to be good on air, right? And it's just, 
there's just so many things that that go into it it's it's you know it's fun at least for you know for you and I to talk about it but um, how, so how long were you in the the fitness industry it was a long period of time right like at least 20 years yeah I've been in almost 20 years <clears throat> I can't see myself retiring from it completely um I guess it's it's still my living, you know, training people is my main source of income. It's been extremely good to me. I've had many, continue to have many, many decade plus training relationships with people. Um, so it's been wonderful for me. And then having a consulting and management business, <clears throat> that is a, a more, a longer sales cycle. So it's, that that certainly is a more uphill battle in terms of um, staying consistent with it. And, and we are. But, you know, the pandemic really, really hit us for a, a big blow with that, with gyms closing and things of like that. So we're having to revamp a little bit <clears throat> on that end for, but, you know, one of my guests, Amy Ashmore, she said it best, like, what did you first do? What, what do you always come back to in, in your life? What is that thing that you always just love doing from the beginning? And, and I thought about this, it's training people. That's what I first did. That's what I did in the middle of my career. That's what I've been doing since. And so I try to honor that and go, you know what? That's just who I am. I'm a personal trainer. I have been an executive. I'm a business owner and consulting and management with that. But overall, I think training has just been my go-to. It's been my livelihood, all of my adult life. And I like doing it. I feel like I'm very good at it. But recently, I have come to experience that I feel like podcasting has, is, is rivaling that. It's just that I'm not making the money off it. Like I'm doing training, <laughs> but I feel like it once, once I do get to that level, I feel like it, it is some, I feel it's native to me. I feel like this is very natural for me to do and I want to do more of it. So would you do both? Would you do like some personal training sessions, probably maybe be like super picky about your clients and also, uh, give the, the monetization of podcasting a route or kind of what, because th- to me, at least, it's like you've been in the industry 20, 25 years, and you said it yourself, you're super passionate about it. And it's not to me, and if it is, I want to hear the story behind it, like a, a flip of the switch decision, like, you know what, I'm going to go do this now. So it sounds like it was more of kind of like a, a gradual build over time. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And I'm fortunate that, you know, at 42 years old, I've been in the business that long, and I'm already super picky. So I I don't have to be hustling constantly to get clients, you know, I think it's because I, my approach has been quality over volume. I may not have a gigantic client load. I don't have 50 clients and stuff like that. I have like, you know, 20 and, but they're very loyal people. And so creating like, Hey, I'm going to take care of the people that I have, bring on few people here and there when I decide to open up some space for it here and there, they have sustained me over again, my longest running person is 13 years now. And, but there's a lot of people that are not far behind them. They're in like the 10 year phase, nine, eight, seven years. A lot of those people, that's the majority of my clientele in that range currently. So I have made my living working with pretty much 75% of my clientele are the same people I've had for the majority of my career. And we have had this symbiotic relationship um, where I take care of their health and wellness physically and 
we take they take care of my financial wellness <laughs> in that sense and but overall we have started to take care of each other's psychosocial wellness and our families and loving each other and caring about each other so i've not been on a, a turnover hamster wheel with training i've just enjoyed loving up and taking care of the people i've had for a long time so in many ways, I've designed my training career to be around the same people as much as possible over a long period. And these are people that, um, if they listen to this, they they already know what it is. There is no expectation that I will retire or that I will stop working with them. These these are forever relationships. They and they've made that clear with me, um, which is daunting on some level too. To be told by a client like we're going to do this until we one of us dies, pretty much. Yeah. So I've been told that many times. So um, it's a nice situation to be in. The podcast would literally just add to it, um, a nice bonus to it. But it's something I want to pursue, certainly on a monetization level. I just, I want to be careful how that comes off because then people will go, oh, see, now you're doing it for the money, you know, like, and, you know, is it going to be the same show? got to eat. And I, and I actually was telling my wife before I got on here with you, I was like, I got to talk to Peter being there as a news organization and he's doing these things. How do you do that? <laughs> you know, I'm like, how do you go for advertising and doing all these things while still being true to what you love about it? You know, I mean, I know that's a off air conversation we'll no, have. I mean, but, I'm, you know. I'm more than happy to, to kind of answer it now. Cause that's one of the things that okay. I, you know, I've truly and, and really thought through, right. And, and my entire philosophy is we report the news, right. For, for those of you that don't know, I run a news organization called the donut it stands for dose of news useful today. It's like fact-based impartial uh, information that we serve alongside positive stories. It's like a little reminder, you know, that there is a lot of good in the world, even with all of the negativity in the news cycle. And I believe that people have the right to know what's going on in the world around them. And to me, that means keeping our uh, news information 100% free, which is a challenge, right? It's, it's an right. absolute challenge, especially in today's media industry. You see a lot of these larger organizations laying folks off. There's a whole ton of consolidation, um, Facebook and Google have pretty much decimated the advertising revenues of the industry. So there's a lot of focus towards subscriptions. But when you do subscriptions, right, you can't keep your information free. So kind of where where we landed is we want to distribute our content on what I call wholly owned channels. And that's a way that we can keep it 100% free, profitable, and also scalable without having to go the, the subscription route. So here's kind of an example. Uh, our first product, our only product right now, even though we're working on a whole ton of other ones, is a daily email newsletter. And a daily email newsletter, if you think about it from a product perspective, it's a fixed cost to create, right? Like it's the same cost for me as a, a business owner, as a news owner, to create that newsletter every single month. And the revenue drivers on the newsletter are the amount of subscribers and the engagement of the newsletter. So that determines how much I can charge on an advertising level. So if I can recoup my fixed cost of creating the newsletter, well, then I have a profitable business that I can just turn around into creating more and more and more free news and information and content. And I have the ability to do so because I don't have a web-based advertising model that depends on traffic and is competing with Facebook and Google who can serve up your ad alongside, you know, a hundred thousand people for like 80 bucks. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's amazing. I, I'm one, so everybody knows 
you must sign up for the donut. You must. It is unbelievably amazing and simple and useful and um, just Peter does an amazing job and his team of just providing you with the news and then you make your own opinion about it. It's it's genius. I love it. And I'm trying to figure out, and one, I try to do that. Like for me with my podcast, like I, it's not like I'm endorsing everybody I'm on. Oh yeah, these are my, all these, you know, do this, do that. Um, Like I very rarely do what I'm just, I just said that, you know, with yours, like I am endorsing that I'm into it, but I try to just like, Hey, listen, this is the topic. See what you think about it. Make your own decision. But I worry about monetizing my podcast in a way where I am saying, Hey, support this financially and how to do it. That is that it doesn't come off seeming slimy and like, see Darian just hooked us in, you know, like now he wants to, you know, for some compensation for it. I'm actually just kind of at a loss to kind of figure out how to do that. I really am because ad placement, if you look at the statistics and podcasts, like the majority of podcasts make no money, you know, it's really kind of a top 1% type of deal for that. But there's different ways as we've discussed that that's starting to change, but I'm in many ways, I'm still very lost on how to best do that while maintaining the ethics of what I'm doing. You know? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a, it's a tough thing to, to do, right. Cause I mean, on, on one hand, and I think you're coming at this the right way, right. And it's kind of the way that, that I like approaching it or the way that, that I like to think we're approaching it is it's like, we're not looking to make, you know, nine figures, you know, billion dollars. Yeah, it's, no. you know, it, there's a lot of cost, There's a lot of time. There's a lot of effort, blood, sweat, and tears that goes into creating the content. And there are costs associated with that, like actual financial costs associated with that. And if you're going to spend more time, uh, you know, on the content and and on the the podcast uh, aspect, to me, it only makes sense because you have a family, you have an eight year old daughter to support. You know, it's yeah. it's it, there's more to think about than just yourself. You know, and I, I think you're approaching it the right way. And the fact that you you have these questions and you know i think everybody listening is going to to see how genuine and authentic you are about not wanting to compromise on content but just wanting to be able to provide a little bit more for you know your your family and and what you want to do what you're passionate about you know i i think i think you'll see a lot of success with that i, I hope you do man i really do i hope so too i think we're very polarized by like the top 1% of podcasts like i'm sure everybody knows obviously like joe rogan and they see like this gigantic deal he did with Sirius, not Sirius, uh, Spotify, yeah. the $100 million deal and you know the amount of money he's making per episode and the downloads and all this stuff. <clears throat> but in the, you know, for people listening, that is a, that's a comet. That is, that's Haley's comet. That is not reserved for everybody. And the majority of us out there hustling, doing podcasts, they're, they're, they're doing it because they love it or... I do understand that some people are just doing podcasts just as a marketing tool to pull clients in and to, as a, you know, whole thing. I get that. I mean, that's not my thing. Uh, you know, for me, it's just, I just enjoy the conversations, but I would be dishonest if I was to say that I wasn't thinking about monetizing it in the future, maybe soon to, um, just to add that element, um, for it. I'm just, um, I'm asking the questions. I'm I'm grappling with how to do it that doesn't feel uh, like douchey club guy. <laughs> you know, like wait, you mean you're, you're not that? 
I'm definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like just like I have people constantly overtly trying to push me to buy stuff, you know, from them and products and things. And that's just not me. I just want, if you love it, great, listen to it. And uh, hopefully in the future, if you love it that much and you want to support it on some tiny level, that would be great, <laughs> you know, but I just, I got to figure out that avenue, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely a, definitely a challenge. And again, like I said, wish, wish you all the best with that. So Thank one you. of the things, you know, as, as I talked about previously, I always love going back to the beginning. And one of the things we touched upon the transition from the, the fitness industry um, to kind of maintaining your long-term, long-term clientele base, but trying to do a lot more on the podcasting front, what initially got you into the the fitness space? Like what drew you to that? Um, I feel like it was a very standard answer, which I hate, but it is just <laughs> what it is. <laughs> I was like, I was a athlete growing up my whole life. The same story that a lot of people have, I think getting into fitness. Um, uh, I think maybe what makes it a little more, I don't know. My dad was, my dad is, was an avid exerciser growing up. I mean, like he literally looked like Adonis and he's so incredibly, uh, defined and, tremendous cardiovascular uh, um, endurance. And I used to go to him, go with him to the gym all the time when I was a little kid and watch him play basketball and lift weights. And I remember thinking, he's so strong. That's my dad. You know, like he's just so strong. I wanted to be like him. And I used to watch all this, you know, in the military, they have all these intramural sports. So he would play like softball, racquetball, baseball, stuff like that, you know, and he was always on like the best team on the base, you know, and growing up on a base is actually really wonderful uh, for kids. And um, so he was my model for that. So he always said, you know, make your hobby, your job, you know, whatever you love, we're supportive of it. And I just like, I was a guy like when I had practice, I wanted to exercise after the practice. And even when I was in college and brutal, very difficult uh, track and field practices. Man. You know, you were a collegiate athlete, yeah, right? You remember? Yeah. It's like after after three hour practices, I don't want to do anything except lay down. Yeah, I would go to the gym. I would. We would have gym. We would go work, work out, lift weights and stuff. Then I would go to the university recreation gym, and I would work out some more. Wow. And uh, not a healthy addiction, I think, for that, but. It was like I noticed that I always exercise when I had problems in my life, going through some issues. It was purposeful amnesia for me. It made me forget um, whatever I was going through. I would go and just take it out on whatever exercise workout I was doing. I would completely forget about what was happening in my life, which was not good in the sense that I wasn't confronting those things head on. And and I learned to do that as I got older. Like hey. I can't exercise my way out of a situation. You know, I need to confront it. Um, but I knew it was something that I wanted to do and that I wanted to not necessarily save the world in a sense. I was never one of these trainers who was like, I'm going to get everybody fit and I'm just going to create fitness for all these people. I, I never believed in that. I was more like, I'm going to help one person at a time and I'm going to help change their world. And hopefully that leads to a couple more people here and there. But I, I was never one like, I'm going to change the entire industry and I'm going to do all these things. I was just like, I'm going to keep this in front of me and I'm going to help people that want to be helped and that desire to do better for themselves. 
And it has to be a two-way street. I can't force people to want to be healthy and, and well and get fitter. Like, you either want to do it or you don't. If you don't want to do it, okay, we're moving on. <laughs> you know, it's I'm not going to force you to do something you just don't want to do. You know, so I think that just really being in collegiate athletics, again, uh, I think it teaches you a lot about yourself. It's something that I think is very difficult for me to talk about with most people because they don't have that background. So you kind of feel lonely in a sense explaining that. Actually, I feel like with fitness people, the majority of fitness people I know were never collegiate athletes. So I'm coming to the business from a very, very different mindset about attacking, about uh, work ethic, about a group mentality, a team, about winning, about losing. They don't understand that. They've never been through that. So... I think my approach is always always very different than theirs with it, you know. Yeah, well, and that's super interesting that you you said that last part. Uh, that's that was my experience at Michigan State as well. Now, obviously, I mean, you had you know one or two people who had played uh, collegiate athletics before, but it appeared to me that most of the trainers that we worked with and, and worked with us just had more of a passion for like the science and. Yeah. Uh, the fitness aspect of, of everything and just enjoyed maybe kind of like you, right. With, as a form of, of escapism and just feel comfortable and at home in a gym setting and just want to, you know, keep doing that and keep doing that and keep exploring that and keep exploring that. And it's super, super interesting to me actually that uh, you want more of the, the individual route as opposed to like a team training route. And I, I know I know you mentioned that's what you wanted to do. Do you know why you wanted to do go that route instead? I, I feel like it's why I do a podcast with just one person at a time. I um, Track and field is primarily an individual sport. I mean, although you train with different teammates and stuff like that on a regular basis, you run in packs together. It's very animalistic, <clears throat> the training aspect of it. Um, in the end, it's it's an individual sport. It's you and the clock, you know, and individually, you know, you compete against your own teammates and meets. It's, it's like a self cannibalism and a thing, you know, type of thing. It's not like, Oh, we're together. We go out there and face this other team. It's like, yeah, we do. But then we also face each other as well during that. Yeah. So it was these, it was a weird dichotomy of like, Hey, we train together. We work out together. We help each other, but you're my competition also. I'm trying to beat you, and I'm trying to beat people from other colleges as well. That's, it's a strange environment. Yeah, that's super interesting because in me, come, I came, I played baseball. I came from a team sport, and for me, like that's the only thing I remember about. Like I remember some certain specific plays and certain specific games, but the cliche is true, right? Like you look back after your time is done and, and a few years have passed, and you don't remember anything about the actual, you know, a- athletic component of it. It's all the camaraderie and all the the team feeling. And for me, at least, it's one that I want to continue to chase, which is why you know I wanted to build the company. I want to foster that. That, that feeling of community. I want to get people united behind a behind a common goal. And I never I never gave any thought to the. It's like golf is a very similar. I, I feel like yeah. instance yes. where it's an individual exactly. sport, but you're all on the same scoreboard and you're ultimately competing against each other for that. You know those top spots. And swimming is the same way. A lot of those yeah. Olympic sports. Same yeah. Way. So how I guess how do you foster or did you guys foster any sort of of camaraderie as a team or was that more just kind of left alone because of that, that competition aspect. 
we did foster it in like relay events because, you know, you're, you're four guys running, you know, for like the four by one or the four by two, four by four, you know, you're on the same team running against another college or a, a variety of colleges. It's actually just a strange sport because it's also a sport where you regularly compete with people who are professional. All the, It's weird. So like you go to a meet and there's hundreds of teams, hundreds of colleges, an invitational, they would call it. And then if it's an open invitational, you may be competing next to the gold medalist in an event right next to you in a heat. And then your teammate might be next to you. It's just a strange, almost incestual thing. That's so interesting. Uh, with it. That's so interesting. So like what, so they were Olympic athletes and simultaneously at the same time, collegiate athletes? Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, well, no, well, well, the Olympic athletes, they had um, dropped their um, eligibility. So they, but they could just enter the meet. <clears throat> if it was an open invitational, they could, anybody could enter. Um, if they were like an independent runner, like unattached, maybe they didn't have um, a sponsorship or a company like Nike supporting them, but they, you know, had the, the times to qualify them for the meet, they could show up, you know, like is weird. It's like really strange. So it's, this alternate reality where you're like, yes, I, I run for this university, but also I'm competing against, against these people who are my training partners and I'm competing against people who are way better than me, Olympians. And then I'm competing against people who may be unattached. They don't, they're not represented by anybody, but they're still pretty good, but they have a dream of running still professionally. It's, it's really strange. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is super interesting because where I was kind of going with that is it's a topic that I've been exploring a lot recently and it was paying NCAA collegiate athletes. Like where, where do you stand on that being a former collegiate athlete yourself? Man, uh, I think that, um, <clears throat> it's hard, like a sport that I'm in, we didn't, we didn't generate any money. I mean, you go to any of the meets, nobody goes to track and field meets nobody in the United States. <laughs> right. Right. I used to go to my college, James Madison, some of the baseball games. I'm like, nobody is here. This is like one of our track meets. You know? 13 people. They're all parents. That's it. Yeah. It's like your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister or something, you know, it's like, then you go to football games are packed, you know, the basketball games are packed. And so. I think the athletes who should probably make the money are the ones that are actually producing money for the schools, actually, like like football teams, and they're taking their likeness, they're on Madden, they're on these things, they're just capitalizing jersey sales. Nobody's buying a track and field singlet, you know, like <laughs> with Parker on the back. I, I didn't, I wouldn't, for me personally, I wouldn't think that I deserved money. I'd be like, I'm not really like, what am I contributing monetarily to the, I'm actually taking from the school. I'm using their money. <laughs> I'm a scholarship athlete. They're giving me a lot already, you know, like, but I understand from other, you know, athletes and, you know, especially like Michigan state's a very large school. And, you know, you had final four appearances and football, you know, great football teams and stuff and, you know, NFL players and NBA players. I get that. I totally get that. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it brings up an interesting point, right? Because, yeah, of course, they, at least in my mind, they deserve to be paid. The NCAA is a, an organization that brings in billions of dollars a year in revenue and has no tax liability, like absolutely zero. So with that being said, you're pretty much making your money off of the image and likeness of the, the athletes. 
Right? But then you run into the struggle of, okay, so we cross that bridge. What's the next bridge? How are we actually going to execute this? And that's where it's like, holy cow, how do you do that? Right? Like you said, does it only go to the revenue generating sports? Let's say it only goes to the revenue generating sports. How do you divvy that up? Does it go to the top players? How like how are you going to actually yeah. determine that? What are some KPIs? Like objectively, how are you going to look at this and actually execute it? And it's a question, like I said, I've been exploring this for months because it fascinates me. And I don't know, I don't have the answer. And you know, I don't know what the answer is, but it's it's something interesting, at least to me, to kind of discuss and talk about and explore, because it seems that everybody's in agreement on that first part. It's just the execution of it. The implementation is the question mark. I just don't know how you like spread that to like the fencing team. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. How much do you pay? Like they get 20 bucks a week. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, does the football player, like does the quarterback of the team get $200,000 a year? And then like the kicker gets like, you know, 5,000. I don't know. I mean, it feels too complicated to me. Right. Right. And that's, I mean, that's, that's the struggle. It's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's something super, super interesting to, to explore and discuss. But um, one of the things that I really, really wanted to, to kind of talk to you about, and I know you told the story, I think you told me for the first time on the podcast that we did uh, previously, and it was about your experience with uh, your father and 9-11. And the reason I want to kind of ask you about that is I think we can draw a lot of parallels between what happened during 9-11 and kind of the, the aftermath in the country. Like the country's in turmoil, people are dying. And I imagine that there's lessons that could be drawn from your experience. So would you mind kind of just taking us through through that day again? No, I don't mind at all. <clears throat> I think um, for a lot of people, very young people, you know, they, they didn't experience 9-11. And um, I think it was a day that it's just, it's to me, it's similar, but it's so different than what's happening now, especially with like the pandemic and <clears throat> uh, the cries for social justice and protesting. And, and all those things are very different. I think 9-11, as I look back on it, was a very devastating day for me and also a very euphoric day for me because it was it was a tale of two emotions or of how how you can be living your life one day and wake up and do the same rituals that you do on a regular basis. You brush your teeth, you know, take a shower, whatever, get ready to do what you're going to do. And then you could get slapped in the face out of nowhere. And often in life, I feel like that's what happens is there are all the little things that you do, the little steps that you take, they feel like monotonous. It's over and over and over. You're doing the same things, doing the same thing. My daughter hates this. She hates when I have to brush your teeth, do this, you know, make sure you brush your hair. You know, she's like, oh, same thing over and over again. You know, it's just like, yes, it's part of living. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, this big event happened. So for me, I was just like getting ready. I was a graduate assistant at James Madison University. And uh, I just remember waking up <clears throat> and seeing on TV, like a lot of people did, like the, you know, Twin Towers, the plane going through and you're like, is that real? Like, like, what is that? Like, kind of crazy. And I, it was devastating to me. But I think the great parallel to what's happening now is it was devastating, but it became more devastating when my, I knew my father's building, the Pentagon got hit. And I think that's, that's the thing is like, especially with racism or lack of understanding about maybe a disadvantaged 
uh, ethnicity and the plight of that ethnicity is it doesn't mean a lot until something happens that makes you makes it mean a lot to you if you're around. Now, 9-11, like a lot of people who are on the West Coast, unless they were had a family member or a friend or somebody who worked in the Twin Towers or they're associated with somebody, they could look at it and go, man, that's terrible. But there's really no connection to it. It was a singular event. A lot of people died on that day. And it, it didn't stop their work life where they're at on the West Coast, whatever. They went ahead and did their regular things. For me, it disrupted my entire existence for the entire week, pretty much. You know, I went to teach a class, got pulled out of the class because they said the Pentagon had been hit with the plane. And I knew my dad was in the Pentagon at work that day. And they turned on the TV for me in uh, the office area for grad assistance. And I just remember watching where the plane hit. And I, cause I know the Pentagon very well. I've been there so many times. My dad's given so many tours. I've been in his office there back in the day. And I was like, that's exactly where his office is. Exactly where his office is, where that plane is. And I thought the worst. I thought, man, he's dead. I, he's got to be dead. There's no way he's going to survive that. It's right there. And um, this was back in the day where, you know, nobody had cell phones, really. I mean, it wasn't like today where like everybody's tweeting stuff and all this news, like you were in the dark and, you know, whatever you saw on TV was whatever you knew about it. And so I got to a landline. I tried to call into DC to call my dad. As you can imagine, the landline was completely um, busy. Uh, most, most people are not used to hearing a busy tone, uh, but that's what it was then, just busy tone after busy tone. And then I called my mom, <clears throat> and she was so stoic about it. She said, we just got to see how it goes. I haven't heard from your father. We're just going to see what happens. And I was, I was trying to like, how can I get to D.C.? I need to get to D.C. I was about two and a half hours away. I got in a car. I was going to drive there. I started to drive there. And then I got a phone call from my mom saying, my dad made it out and he's in an apartment that they put in military personnel. Um, She said he barely made it. His uh, boss, in the the ranking, my dad, um, lieutenant colonel, his boss is a general. And so they get people out based off of the ranking. So they get the lower ranking people out first. And the high-ranking senior per- military personnel go out last. You go on down with the ship, you know. And so my dad was second to last to go out, and he was the last person to make it out alive in that area. And his boss died. He passed away from it. He got crushed in by the building, you know. So my dad barely escaped with his life, and um, so it made it real for me to like to realize how fleeting life can be, but also to spend more time understanding what is this about? Why did this happen? And actually it was a good eye opener for me to really spend more time learning about the other side of the world, the Middle East, and really diving deep into people and not just providing condemnation to people because of this incident. And I, I have, you know, we, we, we tend to blanket uh, you know, in this case, you know, people of uh, Islam faith were just destroyed after this. They were crushed and they were profiled. And when the reality is that there are tremendous, tremendously beautiful people of the Muslim faith, and I have met so many of them. They're amazing people. 
and they have had to deal with constant backlash because of uh, horrendous um, extremist group of that that gained they got all the attention and that's what people were thinking that oh Muslims are extremists look at what they do and and all that and and I tried to spend the time really understanding who these who the people the people are in the Middle East and then travel and understand that and I gained a really good understanding to really get in the weeds of what what is going on with that um, for it so I think it was it was very powerful and it, it brings me back to this up to this time where I think we are <clears throat> we are now faced with another time where our eyes are being opened and it's whether we choose to accept the responsibility of digging through the weeds really understanding the plight of a people that have been oppressed for 400 years and things of that nature. So I draw some parallels between those two things in a sense, you know? Yeah. Well, and uh, I want to get into some more um, specific uh, items like the, the materials, like, like some of the stuff you recommended to me yesterday. So to kind of preface that my, my general philosophy throughout the, the protest has been, I'm a, I'm a 26 year old white male. Like, what the hell do I know about being a black person in America? So my philosophy has been to shut the hell up and listen. And I, I know you gave me some very, very great um, advice on and places to, you know, to look to actually understand what's been going on, as you said, for the past 400 years. And I know there's other people that feel like, like me that, that truly want to help and want to take steps towards listening and understanding. So for those types of people, what would you suggest or what would you recommend uh, that they do? I would say there's a couple of good resources and it's expanding as we go along. <clears throat> but, um, you know, we're in a culture where documentaries are huge. I know I've had a documentary on my podcast and um, I just love, I love that format <clears throat> of um, a film. And there's, I would say, a really good one out there that not a lot of people have watched, but it's on Amazon Prime if you have Amazon Prime, but, you know, a lot of streaming going on. It's called Black, White, and Us. And it's about... <clears throat> transracial adoption, um, which is um, basically, uh, in this sense, uh, white couples who adopt black children, and how what happens when people who are white start becoming aware of what it's like for their black children to face racism, and understanding truly what white privilege is and how um, black children, black adults um, do not have anywhere close to that and understanding that there are, there's a different reality for people when they're black <clears throat> and that uh, it really explores all of that in the sense of like, why didn't, why, why, did not, why didn't we think about this? And it, it's kind of the same thing with a lot of things. If you're not exposed to it, if you have never spent a lot of time around people who have experienced a lot of oppression, regardless of their ethnicity, um, then it's just, it's not in your frame of mind. So it really pulls you into not just adoption, which is very personal to me. Uh, my wife and I adopted my daughter, you know, she's a white woman. I'm a black man. We have an African-American daughter we adopted. So it really hit home for us kind of a biracial adoption in a sense. Um, it's just a great resource for learning about race, learning about white privilege learning about the blind spots that we have and unconscious racism for that. The other thing is uh, one of my um, clients who's uh, a really awesome licensed clinical psychologist, Courtney 
um, Warren, uh, who has an amazing TED talk about self-deception and uh, dishonesty. It's, it's had like 2 million views. It's crazy. And um, she wrote this a beautiful article on unconscious racism on psychology today, in psychology today. And it's amazing. It's, it's the history of unconscious racism and how um, white people need to be educated on and how they view racism and that it's, you can't, you can't say, oh, well, you know, somebody says something derogatory towards a person of color. We're like, well, they didn't know, you know, they just don't understand, you know, or things like I see all colors, you know, I'm not racist. I see all colors and understanding that that's very hurtful to black people. And since you're not validating that there actually is a problem, the real, the reality is that there is color. I know that you're a white, Peter. I know that I'm black. I know that when I see somebody who is Indian, they're Indian. I don't just go, I don't see their color. I see their brown skin. I see their hair. Their hair. I see their facial features, just like I'm sure people see that when they see me. And to say that, that you don't see me, you're basically saying you don't see me. I am this color. Recognize that. And that because I am this color, I have a very different experience in my daily life than you have. And I think that's what black people want to say. Just recognize that. I just, it's so, you're not saying that like, <clears throat> you know it just to recognize that it's a real thing. And I think that's a large part of the protest is like, stop being silent about it or stop trying to say, um, these are not bad people. They didn't, uh, they just didn't know. I'm sure they're not bad people. I'm just saying like, validate the fact that this is a real thing that's happening for that. So those are two, I think, really great resources uh, for that. <clears throat> and actually I have a really, I have a really awesome like Microsoft Word document that has like the different stages of understanding racism or where you may, where you may sit in your lack of knowledge about what racism is or white privilege and things. And there's different resources, books to read, podcasts to listen to. And it's just a, a document you just send to people and it, get, it lets them look, where am I potentially on this scale? And what resources should I be looking at to help me move to the next level of this and have a better educational understanding of, do I have a blind spot for this? Have I just always lived this homogenous experience and just said, well, you know, I, it's my life. Like I'm worried about, I'm concerned about myself. I can't put energy into that. And I think what the world is saying from South Korea to London, to Paris, to the tiny streets of Cali spell Montana, I thought I would never see that. The world saying, no, it's, you can't do that anymore. That's not allowed. You must think about this experience. And, and I, I've been like astounded that the, the protests have gone on this long. I hope it keeps going on peacefully. And I hope that people, we're at a watershed moment where we really will say, because it's really up to white people now, in a sense, to, be, to, to, to look at other white people who continue to have these terrible thoughts and ideas and say horrible things about people of color, to push that down and go, you will not say that. You are done saying, we're not going to allow that anymore. And I'm going to openly protest you being like that. Because black people have been saying that forever, forever, but nothing happens.
So I think now, as I told my wife, who was white, I said, hey, now the burden becomes on you. You have, we have transferred the burden to you now. And it's a heavy burden to carry, but it's one that also, it will disrupt your life and maybe not in good ways for you. But I think the consequences are too heavy now. We, we have to face this demon that's been with us for way too long. You know? Yeah. Well, and that's one of the, one of the things I really wanted to ask about and kind of hear from you is, is your experience. Cause what's been very eye opening for me, and this has been going on for like 10, 15 years is talking to, uh, you know, friends who are black, friends who are Indian, friends who are Muslim, right? I love hearing people's perspectives and understanding cultures or trying to understand cultures, faiths, all, all that sort of thing. Because, you know, I, I'm fascinated by, just other people in general. And there's incredible people all over the world. But what's been really eye-opening to me is to talk to a lot of my black friends who have experienced, uh, you know, a, a lot of racial injustice in America. And it's eye-opening for me. And I, I know not a lot of people or some people just don't get exposed to that. So can you take us through like what your experience has been like or, or some of the things you've encountered? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think it's good because there, you know, there'll be people listening that are white and may say, you know, well, well, what was it like? Like, what is it like? Like, what exactly have you experienced? And I will say my experience being black, well, probably similar to other people, but also probably very different. Like I grew up in a, a more over time, well-to-do black family. So, you know, I didn't grow up in a, a poverty stricken environment um, and experience like violence in the streets and stuff like that. And, <clears throat> um, and how racism may have been in that environment. So I can only speak from <clears throat> my aspect of it in that, in, in that instance, um, though I have family who have kind of grown up <clears throat> in that environment, but I know being black though also is a very, it feels like a very, like I've said before, uh, the, the black body experience, a black messianic body experience it's it hits one of us it hits all of us it's a weird feeling actually to have a group think mentality about it but that's very real for me personally uh when i lived in the deep south in my am i moving around that's when i experienced it most um i hate to say it but it was just my truth like the southern portion of the united states the deep south of the united states i think has struggled tremendously with racism tremendously throughout the years. And I mean, this was in the nineties for me, but, you know, I've had the experience of being called the N word walking around, you know, on the street, um, seeing Confederate flags, the shotguns in the back of the, <clears throat> the trucks and being leered at, you know, being in an elevator, a person clutching their purse, the stereotypical thing, looking at me up and down, you know, um, comments about do I like watermelon and stuff and this and that within like my family, <laughs> you know, like, of course I have this white element to my family is my wife's side, you know, and a long time ago we had something like that happen, you know, and just, so I've experienced like overt racism. I've, ex I've, I've experienced subtle racism, um, you know, being pulled over. I've, I've been pulled over by the cops before. And unfortunately I have not been treated poorly but I've certainly been scared. I've definitely been scared. Uh, we actually have a protocol in my family. Like we have talked about it. What, what happens in this day and age, if I get pulled over, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have my hands on the wheel completely extended out. I will have the driver's license registration 
standing, sitting out there right in front of me in my hands on the wheel because I refuse to reach into my glove uh, box. I cannot do that. As a black person, I cannot do that. If I do that, something bad could happen to me. And whether somebody believes that's ridiculous to think or not, I don't care. It's how I feel. And I've seen, we've seen on TV, people get shot for that, of my ethnicity. I can't, I need to be alive for my family. So I am deathly afraid of getting pulled over by the police completely. I am afraid to jog around without looking over my shoulder. And I live in a very safe place in a very small town. It's a beautiful place. Washington State's a hugely progressive state, but I mean, I shouldn't have to like look around when I'm walking and, and running, you know, because I'm fearful of what might happen to me type of thing, you know? But that's the reality of being in that, of being black, is that you actually have to think about these things. Or if you're applying for a job, you think, like, did I not get that job because I was black? Because I'm black? Like, this, the thoughts cross your mind about those things, you know? Or if you're in a class of people, this has happened to me, you know, you're in a classroom full of, which has happened to me a lot, being the only black person in a class full of white people in college, and the professor calls on you about something black related because they think you should know the answer to all things that are black. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know everything related to that, you know? And uh, it's, it's so, I've had these experiences throughout my life. And unfortunately for me, it has not been um, so consistent or prevalent or really just terrible for me. But even growing up in a very ideal situation, I still experienced it. And I think the other thing too, which I think is a great other thing to understand is that, you know, how I do things, how I conduct myself, the things I say, the decisions I make many times carry more weight than someone who's not my color. And because black people always feel this, they always feel like if I mess up, it becomes this big stain on our entire race. People judge us like one person, one thing a black person does, and we all feel it. Then it's like, oh, see, this is what they do. This is how they act. Versus I had a really frank conversation with my wife last night. And she was like, you know, growing up in the country, she was like, if somebody who uh, was from a, a lower socioeconomic um, environment, let's say like a trailer park or something like that, or they call them a hillbilly or something like that. If they did something, they'd be like, well, they're hillbillies. They're not our type of whites, basically. Whereas there's no delineation for black people. It's like all under the same bucket. And so, you know, she and I were discussing how like, you know, you got to stop that. You can't say, well, because they live, they're this, they're, they're, they're this type of white people. We're going to excuse them. They're not part of it. I'm like, no, no, no. You got to claim them and you got to say that's wrong what they're doing or how they act if they act this way. Don't just excuse it because they're in this environment type of thing. Because that's never done for us ever. It's like, oh, even the guy's successful. He's done really well in life, but he's still black. It reminds me of uh, Chris Rock's, I think it was bigger and blacker. Some I can't remember his, um, which one it was. He said, and I thought it was so true. He goes, 
there's not a white person in here who'd want to be me. And I'm rich. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, he was kind of saying like, listen, even the poorest white per person would not want to be me because I'm black and I'm rich. And while it's funny, man, that hit me so hard. I mean, because he didn't say that just because it's funny, because it's true. There's a lot of truth to that. You know, um, so I feel that I've experienced my fair share. I know my brother has experienced a fair share in his life. Certainly my parents growing up in the civil rights area. I mean, my parents told me a story. My dad was denied going to the hospital one time. The surgeon wouldn't work on him because he was black. You know, can you imagine living like that? No. Like, uh, that's ridiculous. That's completely ridiculous. That wasn't that long ago, by the way. That was like 50 years ago. <laughs> you know, it's like there was a time when before it was Loving versus Virginia where I couldn't marry my wife because she's white, you know, because of what they thought that meant. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, we're, it's, you know, it's crazy to me. Yeah. It's ignorant. It's foolish. And it's perpetuated by ignorant people. And, on, and, and, what, and I told my wife, what's really interesting is it's not going to be the people who are outright blatant, bigotist, bigotry, um, racist people who are just, oh, yeah, that's what I am. They're not going to change. They're probably not going to change. It's going to be for moderate-minded, intelligent, uh, very caring, empathetic, loving white people to make the change. It becomes your responsibility because... The people who are just nasty, disgusting, vile pieces of whatever who will not change in the KKK, they're not moving probably. They're going to dig in. People dig in on things like this in that level. It's going to become the right-minded people who have to make the change and stick up for us. So what are some things? So how, how do we affect change on more of a bigger level? Like what, what can we do or what can I do to, to help affect change on more of a bigger level? I think first learn about it, learn the real history about it. You know, this isn't your Christopher Columbus history, you know, like really learn from people of color, like what it's like on a daily basis. Although you don't experience it, just really learn, educate yourself, listen to uh, different podcasts, read articles, become aware of maybe your blind spots related to it. And then I think the other biggest thing is like, be willing to speak up against other people, other white people who will not change, who are like, you may be around and Peter, maybe you're around with a bunch of your friends, you know, and, and let's say, let's just say hypothetically, they're all white and you're at a dinner party or something like that, or you're at a gathering, a happy hour. And one of your friends said something disparaging about black people. And what has happened in the past usually is that you'll blow it off. You know, so, you know what? I know that's not right, but you know, so and so, they just don't understand. You know, I'm not going to confront them about it. I'm just going to say they don't understand. I think it now becomes your responsibility in that same situation to go, whatever this person's name be, that's wrong. That is wrong. You will not say that again. And you know why you're not going to say that again? Because I will not be connected to you anymore if you spout that hate. If you want to live your life like that, you can, but I will no longer be a part of that life. There's consequences to saying these things. I think that's one of the biggest things I've told my wife about, other white people, like, you got to stick up for us when you, when you see it, when you hear it, and not just go, well, they didn't know any better. You know? Yeah. 
Well, so one of the, I listened to your, your message of hope and healing um, that you put out on, on your podcast platform. And for those of you who haven't heard it, go check it out. It's absolutely incredible. And there was one part in it where um, you were talking about uh, having to explain the situation to your daughter. And I know for a fact that there's a lot of other parents out there who are trying to figure out how to explain the situation to their, their children. So how, how have you done it and how would you suggest going about that? You know, actually we're, um, where I'm at now doing the podcast in this garage, uh, room, I have this room off the side of my, uh, garage that I do this kind of my studio. <clears throat> so I brought my daughter back here because <clears throat> it's nice and quiet. I said, let's have a talk about being black. Let's have a talk about white privilege. Let's have a talk about how we conduct ourselves and the whole thing. And we talked about the history of uh, slavery. We talked about, and she had learned about this in school a little bit. And I wanted to know what she was like, what did they taught her, what they taught her about it. And surprisingly, it was very comprehensive. And, you know, all the things she's learned about with you know, Malcolm X and, and Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King and all that stuff was pretty good. We just, we went through all that and really I just talked to her as a black father to a black daughter, say, listen, this skin color that we have, it makes us different. It just does. You know, and my daughter is saying, why does it have to be this way? I mean, it's just, it seems dumb. I'm like, I know. <laughs> I'm like, believe me, a lot of people know that. But the, the reality is, is that we are different. We are judged differently. How we conduct ourselves matter. I said, the decisions you will make as an adult, and hopefully that'll change with all this happening, but the decisions you make as an adult, how you conduct yourself as a, as a black woman, as a person of a black ethnicity, are going to be judged much greater than they would for anybody else. And you need to know that. You need to be a good example of goodness, kindness, love, and caring. And, but you're being watched. You are definitely being watched in your behavior because you're different. I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it and gloss over it and go, eh, we're all the same. I would never tell my daughter we're all the same. This is not true. It's definitely not true. It's, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe that God loves us all and stuff. But the reality of this earthly presence of mine is that's there. Not all people love us. <laughs> so there's just a harsh reality with that. And I wasn't doing it to scare and stuff like that. But, you know, I did tell her, I said, there are so many wonderful white people in the world. And I have experienced so many wonderful relationships with people that are not black and throughout my life and just tremendously valued and loving and familial type relationships with white people for that. But I did tell my daughter, they need to be educated about us. They need to understand more about what it's like to have that feeling, the exhaustion uh, regularly of looking over your shoulder and a lot of different things. And she got that, you know, and which was funny for her. She goes, I want you to know, I still love mama, even though she's white. <laughs> I said, okay. so, uh, I hope you do. I said, it doesn't matter what. I said, listen, she's always your mom. She's an amazing person. She's incredible. You should honor her no matter what happens. She's your mother. You will honor her. I, she, is, she is white, clearly, and we are black but we're a family and she's learning and we're learning and we're a unit. And she's, Oh yeah, I defend my mom completely. She's my mom, you know, and stuff. And, 
um, it's really beautiful, but there's a reality to it. And I think for anybody, you just need to be honest about what's going on. If if a white family is talking to their white children about it, it's like, you need to be honest about slavery with your children. You need to tell them it was horrific and it's terrible. It's horrible what happened to black people and validate that. Like it's good. And we will not allow people to speak like that around us about that. We we need to we need to defend black people. We it is our responsibility now to to do that. We need to take that mantle. And I think if you learn that when you're a child and you grow up, then you just know that's what you do. You know, and it's kind of like we were talking about before, the taboos of like talking about sex and money and you know things like that. It's like, why do we do that? Why do we keep not having these conversations? This is the same thing. We have to have the conversation. Stop hiding from it. It's like when somebody, you know, I was talking to somebody and they were saying like, um, they talked to one of their friends and they're like, well, I'm uncomfortable talking about race. I'm like, no, that doesn't fly anymore. You need to get, you need to talk about uncomfortable things. We have a problem in this nation. We, we got to start talking about uncomfortable things. You don't, we don't grow unless we just attack those things. And that's my podcast. I am not afraid to discuss any topic, anything. And I, and I told you about, you know, the, the uh, podcast coming up with the death row inmates and stuff like that. I know that I could, I, there could be a huge level of blowback for me. I really don't care. You know, I just think it's it's something that's interesting to me. I'm not endorsing their guilt or whatever it is. I just think that people throw other people away. And they, if it's not relevant to them or it seems like they judge them without knowing exactly what happened, I'm, I'm curious. I want to know what's going on. And we need to have hard conversations and we need to run towards them and not away, f- away from them. Yeah, um, I'm all I'm a I'm all aboard about the the hard conversations. Do Do you think that has something to do with the education system? Because I know I brought up to you um, yesterday, and uh, I'll go a little bit deeper into this. When I was going through the school system growing up and learning about the Civil War, I was consistently told that yeah, slavery was an aspect of the Civil War, but you know that that wasn't the the main purpose of the Civil War. And I remember going to, uh, I went to boarding school, it's called Phillips Andover. And I took a mm-hmm. class on civil, like it was literally all about civil war history. And the very first class, the teacher comes in, makes us all closes books, slams the door and goes, everything that you guys have learned to date about the civil war is wrong. The civil war, the number one reason that the civil war was fought, the only reason the civil war was fought was for slavery. And that's how we're going to start this class. And that's what this class is going to be about. And I remember mm. because it was, it was so eye-opening to me because I was, I was taught something different. And then I hear a different perspective, one that I go, yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Because it's like, what the hell else was it fought over if it wasn't for slavery? <laughs> right, exactly. And, and, and to go even a little bit further than that, like I was talking to you about this yesterday. I only learned about, red, I'm 26 years old. I learned about redlining five years ago. I learned about the Tulsa race massacre two years ago. Mm. Unacceptable. And it's stuff that as, as Americans, uh, you know, it's the good with the bad, right? There's a lot of great things about America, but the failure to look at the flaws of America is a major problem. And to me, I have a major problem with the education system. And, and that's why I'm kind of asking the question, is that where you think a lot of this stems from, or that could be a potential opportunity for change as well? I think it's definitely a big potential opportunity for change because 
I think I had the same education about the Civil War and stuff. It was kind of this glossing over of slavery. And, you know, it's also like who teaches you about it. And I think a lot of the teachers, they're just learning what they learned. And and also, I think it's this, how do I say this? It's this propping up or this celebration of these figures of the Civil War as being heroes and monuments to these heroes. And then you start learning, these these were not heroes. These These are not people you should be putting up statues for. And these are not people that you should be admiring. You know, we, we make these heroes out of people who are slave traders and slave owners and despicable human beings. And I think that's like, you know, a large contention. These like people in, in London, I saw that were like, they destroyed that statue of that slave trade guy, you know, like threw it in the river. And the whole controversy between behind getting rid of monuments, you know, from the Civil War and confederate flags and stuff and it's like oh that's that's history it's like southern pride and i remember thinking i was like what what's the pride about that i don't understand that pride of what the south you're not your own country you're part of the united states if you want to pump something up pump up amazing food you know pump up amazing um traditions of culture and, and and southern culture and hospitality and goodness and kindness don't prop up people who were terrible human beings from your past yeah type of thing well and, and that also and I, brings up you know, oh sorry go ahead no i was gonna say that, that also to me brings up an interesting question because if you go back to the the founding fathers right thomas jefferson has been a, a hot button issue for oh my a while gosh right? and he's he literally i mean and this is this is why it's it's kind of I think tough to have a conversation about it because the Constitution itself and in, in documentation form uh, screams equality and opportunity for all for everybody regardless mm-hmm. of creed skin color religion anything but then in practice you have the exact opposite right it's like so it's it's so tough I guess for me to reconcile the two um, or I guess is there a way to reconcile the two like and take the good with with the bad. I think the the creation of our com- of our country was a good thing, and a lot of people are benefiting. All people are benefiting from being in America. It's a wonderful place. It is a land of tremendous opportunity, and I've lived in many places in the world and above. I would, I love being in America the most. Honestly, it's the truth, man. You know, I love being an American citizen. But we need to we need to have some revision of this history, and I think a lot of people. And what shocked me, being in a military family, is hearing that the Marines in the military are really heavily thinking about renaming bases that are named after Civil War generals and things of that nature. I am shocked, completely shocked by that. Um, it's a good thing to me, I, but I am shocked that they actually are having the guts to think about it. I really am. Uh, because, and funny for me, I told my wife, I was like, do you realize how sweeping this could be? Like, Where I went to high school in Virginia, almost every high school is named after somebody from the Civil War. (laughs) It's like Thomas Jefferson High School, Robert E. Lee. I went to Robert E. Lee High School. Are they going to change the name of that high school now? I don't know. Like, it's unbelievable the branches and how much of this country we have named and honored after extremely flawed people who are doing terrible things, you know? And I know there's going to be people who listen to this and be like, Darren, that's terrible. This is our country's history. This is, 
you know, the foundation of, I, I understand you feel that way, but I'm just telling you, like your history is not the history that you think it is. Yeah. It's, it's not. If you actually dig deep in the weeds to it, it is not what you think. Don't just, don't be surface judgy about it or just rely on what you read in a textbook. Actually learn about it. It is not what you think it is. And it has not been good or fair or even or loving at all to black people over a long time. It just hasn't. And to deny that is just being ignorant. It's just, that's just ignorant, you know, being ignorant. Yeah. I mean, my, my personal viewpoint, and this is separate from the donut, is exactly what you said, is from a documentation and uh, like constitutional perspective, this country was founded on incredible ideals that we as a country have failed to live up to. And to not have an honest conversation about where we failed as a country, to me, does not allow us to move forward. So it's taking the good with the bad, knowing that, sure, we can live up to these ideals. Have we yet? No. But can we ultimately? I have hope that that eventually um, we can. I think we can. And I, you know, and I, I want to be very clear about this. I think that we need to be careful be, in, in this time because it's very easy to have this extremist views on everything. You know, when something, when the tide starts turning, it become it can become very easy to start espousing extremely aggressive, extreme views on things. I think we, we need to change things, but we also need to be thoughtful in how we change things. And I do believe I don't want people to demonize white people either and start having this backlash against white people. You know, white people are our brothers, our sisters. We are part of the human species. We are different. Our experience is different. And that's what a lot of this is about, recognizing our experience is different from each other. But we can learn from each other and we can grow with each other. We can become the better versions of ourselves if we, if we allow it to happen. But the very interesting aspect of it is that it's going to require a lot of people who are not people of color to really look themselves in the face and say, I got a lot of work to do. I got a lot of reading to do, a lot of listening to do, a lot of roundtables to do, and a lot of action to uphold and finally come to the defense, like truly come to the defense of a people that have been just battered for 400 plus years, you know, even when they were freed, they still have tremendous oppression. And, you know, I think this is another important thing, if, if you'll give me a few minutes for this real quick, is um, I think what's also important is like people will say, hey, you know, pull yourself up, do better for yourself. But psychologically, it's, it's important. This is with any person. You don't need the oppressor anymore to have oppression if it's happened long enough. If you oppress something or somebody for hundreds of years, you can remove the oppressor and the people who have been oppressed will start oppressing themselves. That's why things haven't changed for black people also is because it's very difficult to pull yourself up and do better when that oppression has been so prevalent, it has been destroying you over and over and over again, over generations, because you you have ingrained an ideology, a self-fulfilling prophecy of not being able to do things and move ahead. You don't need the oppressor after a certain time to stay oppressed. So 
that is why I believe it's incumbent now upon people who uh, are not of color, especially in this specific white people, to say, hey, we must help. We need we need to assist them because that oppression is so deep. You can't come out of it by yourself. You need assistance. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, my hope with with all of this, and I think we've seen the um, and uh, again, I hope I hope this all all follows through. Is I'm very hopeful that people in power, when I say that, I mean politicians, are going to take action uh, to help or work towards solving a lot of the the problems that exist. Um, and kind of with that being said, I always love to, to look at it from like a, what can we unify behind? And pretty much I haven't ran into somebody who's not unified behind holding police officers accountable for actions. Right. And, yes. you know, looking at the the video, you know, obviously the George Floyd video, it's despicable. It's disgusting. It's, it's absolutely horrific. And, you know, it's something that I feel like to me as a country, I would love to see us unite behind something to actually enact or affect change or demand more from our politicians. And it gets really frustrating for me when a lot of what we should be united on, right, like truly united on devolves into partisan bickering. And uh, I, it's, I hope, I just don't know, you know, I, that's what the donut's about, right? It's about bringing people together of yeah. different backgrounds, beliefs from different communities to try to enact understanding and change through information, right? Kind of what, what we were talking about, just, just exposing yeah. the truth, right? In an impartial fact-based manner. And I hope, you know, by, by doing that and a lot of the, the protests, which, you know, are still going on. And I, I hope they continue, right, until actual change happens. But, you know, I, and I'm, I'm hopeful, I guess. Do you, do you share the, the same hope or is it more of a, a cynicism given everything um, I imagine mm. that you've gone through? I'm, I'm definitely hopeful. I mean, I'm, I'm just a hopeful person in general, so I'm going to maintain that. But I will say there is a side of me that is very cynical about politics in our country. And I have a kind of an insider's point of view in this as my father, um, as he rose in the military ranks and then as he became a um, civilian contractor, you know, he spent a lot of time at the White House, spent a lot of time in congressional hearings and stuff. And to hear his um, disappointment in our political system is really damning because he, he was there constantly around all those folks. And I really what what I think needs to happen is and what I feel is happening is that we're in the we're in the last stages of this uh this period. And what I mean is kind of like, you know, we look at like periods of dinosaurs or whatever, you know, the crustaceous period or whatever, things like that. I feel we're entering the end of a period of politics, we're seeing the last gasp of old ideology and ideas of, of oppression from people who grew up in an era where they thought it was okay to be like that and to be insensitive. Because I truly believe that the children that grow up around this, they are going to completely create a tidal wave over the old thoughts and ideas. And I think that's where some of the contraction is happening with people who will not fall in line with this is they're 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 afraid 
they're afraid that the, their way is dying, that the darkness is receding. It is. It's starting to recede. And they are fearful that one day soon that they will become the minority. And what's powerful about it is that is like, think about it. Nobody wants to be the minority. <laughs> and I'm like, they want to be in the power. But you've had the power for a long time. When people lose, it's always about power. When people start losing power, they start scratching and clawing. And I think that's what's happened with our politics. We're starting to see the fade of old school power. And people could see over the horizon the tsunami coming. And when people's power is getting replaced, they get ugly because they know it's over almost. And I'm not saying that's going to happen immediately, but I think we're finally in the last phases of that period of that good old boy mentality. There was going to be new leadership at some point. I don't know when. We'll see. But I feel like our new leadership at some point in the future is going to be powered by the ideals of what we are experiencing right now. And that is so powerful. And the people who don't want that to go, they're afraid right now because they know it's, they know for sure it's going to happen now. I heard a, an interesting perspective the other day that I think ties into that. And uh, it's centered around every time there is a major economic revolution, there's been kind of a reshuffling of the world order. So mm -hmm. going back like a, a little over 100 years ago, right, the Industrial Revolution, yes. what happened after the Industrial Revolution? And 1917, World War One. Well, World War One occurred, and then what was World War Two? World War Two was pretty much an extension of World War One. And after, so after World War One, you pretty much have the entire world order similar or the same. You can you can draw a direct line from stuff that's happening today all the way back to World War One. Well, what just happened 20 or so years ago, a little over 20 years ago? Well, the internet came about. It's the information age, the information revolution. Right. So it, if, again, you look at it kind of historically and from that sense, you're right. We're, we are kind of due for some sort of, of reshuffling of the world order, we are. sort of revolution. And when it's going to come, I, you know, I, I think anybody who tells you they know when is lying or full of shit. Yeah, I don't both. know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, at some point, I, I, I do think it's really interesting to look at it from that perspective, because to me, history always repeats itself. It's the same patterns where human beings are flawed. We make the same mistakes over and over and over and over and over again. The circumstances are just different. So it's, it's really interesting to hear, hear that perspective and have that be the second one of kind of like that, that reshuffling that I've heard in the past like three days or so. I think so. We're in the labor pains right now. It's um, my wife has worked as a um, OB nurse for many years um, in the past, and, and we were talking, and we heard somebody saying this. We're like, it is. It's like giving birth. We are giving birth to a new child right now. We're in the we're in the labor pains, and it's um, you know the contractions are getting closer and closer together. It's happening, and when that baby will be born, I can't tell you. I have no clue, but I'm telling you, it's gonna be born. And that's what I think the fear is, you know, like I saw on, there's this gentleman, I guess, who went up and he just went nuts on some lady in a crowd and was just yelling at her. And she just looked him in the face and she said she saw fear in his eyes. And I looked at my wife, I said, he saw fear because he knows it's over, it's coming. And when you know that it's over, people scratch and claw. When you're on a cliff and you got your hands on, on that cliff's edge, 
You'll try to do anything to pull yourself up to, to not fall from the cliff. But right now there's somebody standing on top of that cliff with their foot on those fingers. You know, like, your time's up. It's coming, man. I know that maybe is a gruesome way to look at it, but it's just, we're at that stage. And to not know that, you know, I don't know what to say, but I think a lot of people who are still espousing the same ideology and the hatefulness and the bigotry and the disgusting rhetoric, I think they have actually realized this actually might be the end. And when people get pushed in the corner, you know, they do weird stuff. They they do nasty things. And so I I think you're going to see more nasty things uh, that people do as this thing starts to birth uh, a new nation. And we should want a new nation. We should want a nation that progressively moves forward and that is better for all people, but also acknowledges the the tr- tremendous tragedy and horrible nature that things have happened for certain groups like African Americans. And, you know, I think what's also is this Native Americans need a time too, man. Mm-hmm. Holy cow, they need a time. You talk about black people mm-hmm. have had oppression. Native Americans may have had it the same or worse, or they've never recovered. They have almost no prominence in society at all. And so there is this a tremendously deep, deep, deep hurt and wound from the people who have been captured from another country, brought here to be slaves and work and build the country, to the people who have who lived here originally and were driven out of their land completely. It's like we make up these fairy tales about this, like Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, and we make it sound all great, and meanwhile, he was a huge asshole. And we, but we celebrate it. Oh, Columbus Day. Really? Really? That day, why? Go back and learn about this man. Why are we giving this a holiday? People just need to re-educate themselves and learn, like, let's learn about these superheroes of, of our history. Are they really your superheroes? Are they your guru? I'm telling you, they're not. Go back and learn about it. Yeah, I mean, there is there is a lot of revisionist history, and you know, I think part of that also is the the victor rewrites history, right? Uh, but yeah, I mean, of course. <laughs> but I mean, with, of course, right? <laughs> dude, I mean, I would I would love to just like I love conversations like these, but I'm gonna have to run now. I know we've been doing yeah, me it too, man. Two hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy. It goes quick, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it felt like like a half hour. I, I looked up and I was astonished. I'm going, holy cow, we've been doing this for two hours. <laughs> It doesn't feel like it at all. Well, thank you so much for Peter, Peter, for coming on and um, asking questions and being, you know, open to being educated and just just chatting with you. You're an awesome person to talk to all the time. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much, man. It's I uh, I'm very grateful we got introduced to reach out to me on Spot a Guest and like you said earlier, man, I, I consider you a friend as well, and I absolutely loved doing this, and I'd love to you know help you out in any way, do anything I can moving forward. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, we'll definitely be in touch. Oh, can't wait. I'm still waiting on that retreat, man. 2021. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> All right. Man, thanks. All right. 